Well, look, it's not always uh, candy canes and lollipops in the Millennium Noggin. It's been a bit no. of a bit of a dour and, and somewhat negative morning with some of our discussions pre-show. You know, oh, yes. exploring the pitfalls of oh. the fitness industry on mm-hmm. uh, as broadcast on social media mm. and various superficial. things around that. And then we've just learned about the the death of um, we, yeah. the, the drummer from Pantera, mm. uh, Vinnie Paul. And interestingly enough, 54 years of age. Mm. That's early to tap out. Massive heart attack. Mm. And uh, ticking all the boxes for a heart attack, mind you, with Mm. the hard liquor and the body mass and and Mm. whatever else. Yeah, Um, I dare say his uh, nutrition probably wasn't um, hitting his macros. (laughs) And uh, yeah, yeah, I think he would have been more of a if it fits your macros sort of guy. Very much so. Don't quote me on that. And running the surplus. Yeah, I mean, that. uh, we were also segue. We were talking about growth hormone and... um, Yep. You know, me uh, asking questions, and um, I shot an email over to uh, Dr. Mike Scally, who we've had on the Scallywag, who we've mm. had on the program before, and uh, I said, what are your thoughts? You know, a little uh, TDM style, a little bit of GH, uh, maybe anti-aging at the age of 30. You know, it's a bit of a downward decline on growth hormone levels. <laughs> what are you laughing for? <laughs> hey, yeah. Don't let me sick the Wookiee on, do you? Cam sick him. Um, and uh, then he sent back a, a, a pile of uh, a murder of uh, studies. They <laughs> sent back saying that uh, it's a bit of a fallacy that the life-extending properties of growth hormone. Yes. And insulin resistance was referenced there. And the, and, and from our time with Broderick, we know it uh, liberates energy. Liberation of stored energy. Exactly. Yep. So glucose in the bloodstream. So definitely there. But Elevated blood sugar. Uh-huh. But uh, I spoke to Broders about it because um, we're going to talk about Broders in a second, which will be really exciting. Yeah. Uh, and Andrew Trauner. Equally yes. exciting. Equally so exciting. It's, it's quite an exciting episode. He said, yeah, uh, but insulin resistance for someone that's a, a bodybuilder or lives a, a, a training uh, lifestyle, really, really, really unlikely. Sedentary mm-hmm. individual, uh, possibly, that's uh, problematic with growth hormone use. So that's uh, not really a concern, that side of things. We know that insulin resistance, obviously, is a, is a marker of poor health over time. And then the, the life-extending properties, Broderick did agree on, no, not life extending, but uh, so life expectancy. No, doesn't have a, a significant influence on that, and that makes sense. Anything that and testosterone therapy falls into this class of uh, exogenous supplementation. Anything yes. that 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 extends the the mass of the 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 individual for a longer period mm. will obviously be something much larger will wear out much sooner than something that from a certain point in time gets yep. smaller and smaller and smaller it will extend its existence uh-huh. so that makes perfect sense um, so he did agree with that but he, the caveat was that life that is lived up until said you know shorter life expectancy will be a much greater well theoretically a much greater quality of life yeah. with you know the joints connected tissue and it, you know hair skin nails and all the, the the plethora of benefits to having higher growth hormone and arguably higher testosterone productivity cognitive function maintaining muscle mass bone strength all these types of things so yes expectancy may be a little shorter but quality would uh, arguably be better be greater in here yeah. so that's the, the point of difference so it depends how you look at growth hormone yes. so Face value, oh, life extending, no. Quality of life extending, yes. Yep. So two different things. After the Dr. Mike Isratel mm. most recent episode talking about this very thing and mm-hmm, the, um, mm-hmm. I guess, the finite nature of the mammalian heart and the mm. amount of beats that it can actually produce over time and having a few discussions with people about longevity, mm. if you think about the people that 
are really ticking the boxes for living the longest. They're kind of like the monks in the Shaolin mm, Temple. Mm. You know, they a lot of Asians. They're small. They're, they're small. They're light. They mm. consume very little. They can mm. fast for long periods of time, and they sit still in mm. meditative states mm. where the heart rate can be very low for mm. extended periods of time. Yeah. And they're connected with uh, mm. some sort of higher force as well. Yeah. So they're spiritual. They they've had their mushrooms. Their yeah. They've had the mushrooms. They've had the mushrooms. Maybe there's some... Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, just before we get into the nitty-gritty of today's program, yep. um, I did actually talk to Brodders. That got mentioned amidst this conversation about expectancy, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And he said that... Um, and uh, this is one thing that my mum always... You know, chimes in are like, oh yeah, I'm doing this, got to eat this many calories. Only, you know, the research says, you know, eat less, live longer. Mm. And uh, I think that uh, the research that has sort of gone full circle. And uh, Brodick was explaining that uh, in that situation, it was, yeah, I think in the research setting, I think it must have been rats or mice or whatever. Um, but it was like, yeah, they live longer, but that's because they didn't move because they had no energy. So it's yes. sort of like, yeah okay the, so ones the energy that balance ate, equation is actually very similar yeah so yeah. if you if you ate then you move more you had more productivity everything was great mm. but you wore the system out a little bit longer so mm. yeah if you don't eat anything you just lie there in a coma yeah. yeah you extend your life so again depends how you interpret the the, the research so yeah mm, yeah food for thought but but overall he did agree that a, that a bigger uh, being which is what most of us are trying apart from Cam, he's not there pushing the weights, but you and I, you're probably a little less than me, but myself and certainly uh, many others listening to this by, you know, creating a larger version of ourselves, we're eh, not doing as, we're doing a bit of a, 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 a disservice in mm. regards to life expectancy. But, yes, uh, yeah. I well, think mate, but you're only 30 years of age, so you've got a long way yeah, to go. look, I've got at least another 10 or so up my sleeve, so uh, <laughs> I'm going to make it a good 10. Right, uh, so we've got Andrew Triana again on the yes. program today. Lots of good feedback after mm. that first episode. Yeah. And, uh, exciting fresh voice to have mm. on the podcast fresh blood which is really cool and at the time of this recording he was fresh off the back of a strongman competition so mm-hmm. we opened up and spoke about that a little bit and then I guess we looked at his method of program design and periodization using himself as a bit of a yeah, case study he used as, him as an example as we went along. it's really cool but there's you know, you can sort of go through the bullet points of how he structures mm-hmm. his setup and blah blah blah. So we'll get to him very very shortly, yeah. which is which That's is awesome. exciting. Yeah, it's a really. What do we got first? Really cool chat. Let me go into some supplements and stuff like that as uh-huh. well. So it's so it's awesome. But uh, what we're going to talk about now, Rawdon, is this is big. This is big. So mm-hmm. obviously we had Broads out here. This is Broderick mm-hmm. Chavez, uh-huh. uh, the Evil and the genius. lovely Kyman. They were out here for the seminars, and we actually had uh, recorded the Brisbane seminar. Mm-hmm. And we've packaged up all of that content mm. and put it together the fat. on a digital learning platform mm-hmm. where we can distribute this content in course format, mm. uh, which is really exciting. And now that it's actually done and mm. you look at the finished product, you're like, this is... This is a good product. Yes. I'm happy to uh, happy to promote this. And, and and for our listeners, for for Tommy to actually say that, you know, yeah, you know, happy having your name to something, it must be tick a few of the boxes. It must be acceptable. Yeah, it's absolutely acceptable. So, and um, wait a second, maybe that's because we weren't really involved in it. Yeah. We were just on the outside. <laughs> yes, looking very in. much so. Yeah. Well, we trimmed the fat. Yeah, so we've cut us out fat. of it. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> right. We've cut us out of it. <laughs> we left us us on the uh, cutting yeah. room floor. That's it. But basically, it's uh, six modules. 
comprising all kinds of different stuff. Like, um, we, yeah, should I just rattle down some? Yeah, of the go stuff on. That's just just dangle that carrot okay. for me. I'm, I might buy it. Right, macros, their purpose and how Broderick allocates them. Mm-hmm. Manipulating macros for training days and non-training days. Okay, that's Manipulating good. Manipulating carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Cheat meals. Okay. Carbs and fat storage during refeeds. Okay. The body's insulin response to food. Mm-hmm. Increasing glute four translocation for body weight or performance. Good. Uh, anabolic androgenic steroid family tree. Ooh. Really interesting stuff. Very interesting. Um, That's pa- an elephant, I think. Powerlifting pharmacology. Uh-huh. Right tool for the right job. Yep. That yep. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, cardiovascular training, applications and modalities, a HIT protocol for fitness and performance, mm. periodization for cardiovascular training, Okay. hierarchy of energy usage, and fat loss physiology. Okay. Uh, pathology, blood work, what tests are more important and why, periodization, Jeez. hypertrophy, the use of intensity and volume for natural and enhanced athletes. Uh-huh. Uh, Miso soup progression for hypertrophy. Uh-huh. Yep. yep. Uh, single joint versus multi joint exercises. Tissue specific volume allocation when considering hypertrophy. Volume oh. and intensity in powerlifting strength peaking phases. It, it goes on and mate, on and go, on. I dare say the kitchen sink will be on there somewhere as well. 16 mate. week preparation leading into a physique contest. What types of PEDs may be useful at the beginning of a contest prep? Oh. Final two weeks of a prep to peak Holy uh, a competitor. Carbohydrate loading time. Was I at this same seminar? Diuresis and gyretica. This is the funny thing, mate. When you're actually in the seminar and we're in our... We're balls deep in the seminar. I don't remember any of that. I don't remember any of it. Mate. But when you actually go through it and you you break it down and you section it up and Uh you title it and do all Uh this kind of stuff that we did with Flex. Yep. Dean and Lizzie were working hard on this as well. It's been a a combined effort. Combined effort. The, all this content is there. Broderick going absolutely nuts. Mm. It's well structured and laid out, so mm. you can you can literally just log on if you had five or ten minutes free. Mm-hmm. Pick a topic you want yep. to learn about. Yep. Play it. Listen to it. And look at the transcript. Maybe copy the detail out of that. Uh-huh. Chuck that in your little folder of notes or whatever. Yep. So I do think it's a very useful resource of educational material. Yeah, and and the thing is with Broderick, if, if I mean our listeners would be familiar with him, but even if they haven't, like it's it's such an easy listen. You, you could listen yeah. to him all days. It's it's yeah. fun to listen to. It's an easy listen. You're it's right. It's an easy listen. Yeah, it's yeah. good. It was funny when I was um uh, when I we had to go through our different sections. I actually, I, I and I actually did it with you as well. I was giggling away because. Uh, with the with the YouTube, you can slow down. So we had clips that we had to review and 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 break it into section, do timestamps. It was quite a, a process. You did yours, I did mine, yeah. but you can pick up the speed. So so I, I had uh, he was talking like a chipmunk. He was rippling through. So <laughs> that was really funny. But then I I slowed it down because I was trying to get the exact timestamp when someone stopped saying something. Yeah. And then I could hit pause, and then it was. And I <laughs> I listened I listened to Broderick like on slow mo. And that was funny, but then I listened to you on slow mo. Hilarious! <laughs> I was I was wet myself. It was it was so funny, dude. You're like, you know, talking like this. It was really really funny. Uh, but yeah. So what I thought we might do, Rawdon, is uh, as we like to do on Let's the under, dangle under the a bar, carrot. Let's give him a little something. <laughs> dangle a carrot. Mm. So I mentioned in the cardiovascular training, he has a hip protocol yep. for fitness and performance. Vaguely remember this, yeah. One of the things Brod does is he likes to separate cardiovascular training it's like it's not from a fat loss perspective mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and a performance application perspective so here he's not talking right. about using cardio for just burning energy that you shouldn't have eaten yep. this is about performance and improving your cardiovascular output okay yep. okay let's have a little listen cardiovascular exercise in a high intensity paradigm where you're also going to get a component of fitness you're going to get actual 
plastic changes to the body. You're changing the physiology in response to the exercise, like hypertrophy, like the ability to express power against the barbell. You're looking for changes within the metabolism, not just changes within the fuel reserves. Big difference. That is largely a function of performance. Same way you get stronger with a barbell. You progressively put overload on a bar. You must do the same thing with your cardiovascular effort. What I do, what Rodden's referring to is, people love to, lately love to love the high intensity interval training. I also like that. Arthur Jones was very famous for saying a lot of things, many of them wrong, but all of them interestingly, like I said in the beginning, make you think. And a lot of how we arrived at today was because people took the time and effort to debunk a number of the things Jones said in the 70s. Uh, and I'm not condemning him. I actually wish I could be as wrong as Jones was because, you know, here we are 70 years later. People still fucking remember his name. I'm guessing 70 years from now, nobody will know who the fuck I am. But anyway, Jones often pointed out you can run fast or you can run long, but it's very, very difficult, bordering on impossible to run fast for long i.e. the high intensity cardio. You're doing intermittent bouts of very, very high intensity and then lower intensity. And what I would recommend you do is assign some numbers. If you can't measure it, it's not really a thing. That's pretty, pretty much the fundamental tenet of science. If you can't measure it, you're just talking about nothing. You're talking about ethereals. So I would measure your heart rate and you have one and it's whatever, it's 80. I don't know, might be better than that, might be worse, but let's say your heart rate's 80. There's something called the Carvonin method in clinical medicine where you determine the maximum safe heart rate. What they've determined is you take 220, subtract your age from it, and that is roughly the highest you should rationally and litigiously, from an insurance provider point of view, raise your heart rate to. It's probably not perfect, but it probably is good for that purpose. So you're 40 years old, you take 40 from 220, you get a number, that's as high as you let it go. With that in mind, you then take what your heart rate is, you get on device, and you bust your ass and work as hard as you can. And most people do this in terms of time. They go, oh, I'll go 60 seconds as hard as I can, and then 60 seconds low or whatever. That doesn't take into account your fitness or that I might die threshold. I think taking those numbers into account is more relevant. So what I would say is get on device, bust your ass, drive your heart rate up to, depending on who you are and how fit you are, 70, 80, 90% of that don't die number, the Carvona number, let's say 90% of it, you drive your heart rate up to 90% of that, and then you back off very nominally, turn the pedals, let your heart rate fall back to about 50% of the difference. So if you went from 80 to 180, let it fall down 50 worth, then drive it back up to that number again, let it fall 50 worth. So you're constantly elevated between 50% above your normal heart rate and 90, or you know, almost 100% of your resting heart rate or just below your death rate, if you want to think of it that way. And then your progression becomes, because those numbers stay the same, your progression then becomes time. You do this activity for 10 minutes week one, 12 minutes week two, so on and so on, until you get to a point where you can maintain that 50 to 100 range for 30 to 40 minutes. And that's about all the fitness you should need, theoretically. The way you could also track that is Something I strongly recommend is independently, you track your resting heart rate, maybe first thing in the morning, and you should see that decline because of this activity. Just like doing curls over time, you should see the circumference of your bicep go up. You track the results independently of the activity. It's not a great idea to measure your bicep in the middle of a bicep workout. You're gonna get a skewed result 
want to check it independently, see that this activity is generating that response, and that's how I would generate fitness over time. Quality stuff there from Mate. Bruce. Isn't that... What was I cool? there? I was to do a separate <laughs> seminar. You actually asked the question, I believe. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I was yeah. referencing that. Clearly, you know, when I'm under the pump, I... Uh, but yeah, it was absolutely awesome. If you can actually do that, like mm. if you can take your heart rates to up to ninety mm. and then fifty percent down and to fifty percent of your max and back yep. up to nine, do that again for if you can do that for forty minutes, you'd be pretty fit. Yeah, yeah. I reckon that would be, you, a, you would be a, pretty fit a conclusion we could make definitely. Yeah, yeah. or and, dead. And he does put that in the context of general physical fitness yeah. and and having a level of cardiovascular performance that can enable you to do the work you, mm. you need to do hypertrophy wise in the gym mm. Mm. and you know not be dead in between sets mm. and, and be a healthy human and all the other things that we're, we're talking about yeah i mean one of the things that i uh i think uh dalton to reference dalton hey dalton how you doing g'day dalton uh good friend now that i that i know him and i, and I know he's uh he's a good definitely uh very uh, skilled at his craft and uh, an awesome coach working for flex and and one of the things we spoke about in sydney was you know i put my hand up and you know but, you know, thinking I was all, all that and saying, oh, yes, but I don't program cardio in the off-season. So when I introduce it, I get a big return on investment in the on-season, you know, from a energy output, and um, which is true, but, but it's nominal. Like, it, it's, yep. it's uh, that, that the benefit to doing cardio in the off-season, off-season would, would outweigh what extra calorie expenditure you would get because yeah. that dissipates quite quickly. You yes. might get it for the first couple of sessions, yeah. and then it will go back to whatever it would have been just calories yep. for calories you know if you had done in the off season so um yeah i think uh, i don't do it i don't do it like at this point in time because i like to okay this is building muscle mass everything absolutely focused around building muscle mass yep. so i don't like to confuse the the situation now mm. it's so yeah i don't but i certainly see but that's from a, a specific specific prep. thing and you're not long concerned term. about their long term no their health least <laughs> my concerns yeah yeah dalton however maybe yeah um but yeah all jokes aside you know for long-term training and periodization definitely i think something and, and look i incorporate a step count daily so i'll make sure i a certain amount of activity now i'm mm. not going into that that upper cardio bracket of cardiovascular, but yeah, yeah, it's probably something that, yeah. that I should do as well. So, to get access to the product, you yeah. go to evilgeniusdownunder.com forward slash online. Yep. Evilgeniusdownunder.com forward slash online. Uh, we've dangled the carrot, so mm. now we should give you a little, uh, a little promo code that uh -huh. we usually do. This will be valid for a period of time, uh, evil50. So, you type in the promo code evil50. Now, is that the word 50? <laughs> Or five zero. Five zero, the number fifty. Ah. So the word evil, and then the number fifty, mm. and you'll get. Uh, I think it takes the price down from one ninety nine to one forty nine or something mm -hmm. like that. One hundred and fifty bucks for one fifty for, for this. I guarantee that is not money wasted. Exactly. You will get. You will get more than one hundred fifty bucks. It's it's, it's it's absolutely worth one hundred fifty bucks. <laughs> we would charge much more for it. But, um, you know, we charge a certain yeah, amount for tickets point. and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, you know, we like to undersell ourselves all we the do. time. We don't want to make any money. No. So that's what you do for that. That promo code, if you're listening to this episode, you know, 10 weeks down the road, then that might not be valid. Yeah. But... Uh, we'll get in. First get in quickly. Best rest. Yeah. Get, get in, in quickly while it's valid. Uh, so that's oh, yeah. that's, that's that. that. Yeah. Awesome. So where are we going now? We well, got Triana coming up. Yeah. Look, let's go and talk to uh, Andrew Triana, good friend and colleague of Broads, mm -hmm. uh, very smart dude, and um, yeah. Well, let's have a let's, let's have a, have chat a with listen. Him. Yep. Yeah. 
Andrew Triana from the Performance Vibe is mm. back on the line, Rorden, and we've just actually been chatting off-air mm. about a very successful uh, strongman meet that he's just been to personally. Yeah, didn't it's, get the, the top gong, but uh, very successful with, with everything uh, when according every aspect to plan. Of it. I yeah. got him T-crossing, so... And um, what was interesting, Rorden, is that he said that everything in the whole week... Mm. was perfect and he remained calm and he mm. and even he had his workflow under control and everything mm. was dealt with and uh, one of the things he mentioned last time when he was on that the alarm phase before an event mm. and that heightened sense of physiology can Arousal, start yeah. you know 40 hours out from the actual event and I certainly know personally you know like semi-finals or a mm. final mm. like you can spend the whole week stressed mm. and edgy well, and, and get to the day a little tired yeah, you know? yeah so managing that is a huge part of any endeavor definitely and, and all I can I mean I haven't played any uh, elite sport like yourself but uh, but bodybuilding obviously the, the, the main event and that yeah. that from a you know a physical appearance can also deteriorate things. massively so, massively absolutely intrigued to find out how it all went uh, with Andrew yeah Andrew you there yeah, I'm here, guys. Really happy to be back on. So, mate, aside from a little uh, slip of the shoe in, in one of your sled drags, pretty much the whole day went as well as you could have planned it and hoped for and a, a great representation of your model and what you, how you prep your athletes. So yep. do you want to just talk us through briefly the event, but how you got yourself in a position to really nail it as well as you did? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh one of the things I try to do is I always try to pick competitions that force me to work on my weaknesses. And this one panned out perfectly for me because some of the most competitive American 200 pounders in the class, uh, in like the world's strongest man class, were going to be there. They were all some like very, very heavy events, which is typically my weakness. And it was great timing. So I like went all in. Um, everything went very well leading up to the competition from the beginning all the way to the end. And as far as preparation goes, it started about 12 weeks out, and whenever there is an intense, intense uh, neurological need or demand in a competition, uh, it always is going to have very, very different training than what it might typically look like in strongman. Because yeah. as I might have spoken about last time, strongman is like predominantly a glycolytic sport, especially when we uh, analyze the demands of it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think I might have skipped out on your personal question. Sorry about that, guys. No, that's fine. Uh, Just keep going. Is that one for nah, me? Yeah, no, keep going, keep man. Keep going. Like, this, uh, is, this is good. Flowing. Yeah. Now let's let's keep going where you're going with the the twelve weeks out and uh, yeah, you could talk us through it and then we'll we'll recap that that peak week leading into it and how you managed to keep calm and and, and get everything on point. So you're you're saying your, your training would be a little different when you're coming up to a, a big uh, neurologically. Uh, demanding uh, event, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it really all starts with the assessment of the competition because every single competition strongman is going to be different. So I start with like a piece of paper, I write it all down, I break down like the energetic needs of each individual event, I look at it objectively in a couple different ways, and I start to really look at like what as a whole does this athlete need to look like and be able to do on game day to perform optimally. So like I said, typically strongman is going to be in the glycolytic world. And I was a little excited because it's not my strength and doing neurological training just uh, something I kind of enjoy. So uh, there were four events that were all very, very heavy and in that like uh, top end phosphogen system with that inherent neurological tie-in and that emotional tie-in, that like in the moment zone in training and performance. Yeah. And there was the exception of this medley that was pretty glycolytic, which there's always one outlier strongman. But those four events uh, being pretty similar in how heavy and uh, 
their energetic time demands yep. made a pretty fun show to train for because I could just pretty much just get very very strong. So okay. one of the things we I think we do a little different at the performance vibe is we do extensive assessments and looking at the needs of the athlete and the needs of the competition and melding those two together prior to creating the program. So the program is really created last. So just to like kind of go in a sequential order of it, um, the first thing we always do is create some type of coach-athlete relationship with the person we're working with. And in this case, it was myself. So when you're your own coach, that requires introspection and self-awareness, and it really requires you to be able to zoom out and uh, look at yourself as an athlete. And I'm really glad that we're doing these types of uh, topics on the podcast because yeah. my uh, co-founder of the performance vibe, Nick Hadge, is competing in Ultimate Strongman's uh, Summer Mania very soon. And uh, I've obviously been competing recently as well. So these are actually kind of conversations we've been having together. Yeah. But, yeah. And, and, and tell me, uh, as much as you can, uh, you know, uh, project yourself uh, into the background and have that perspective looking in, do you also get... Um, your colleague there to uh, to oversee things, or are you handling the whole process yourself? Are you trusting yourself to handle the whole process? So he's definitely an overseer in like the acute sense. So what I do when I create my own training is I'll write the whole thing ahead of time all at once, and then I'll save it, forget about it, and then I'll start training a couple weeks later. And I've just found that to be the best way for me to be objective in my own training because I'm a coach first. So like I actually want to be able to do the protocols I prescribe to athletes and try to be as dissociated as possible and like obviously lacking as much bias as possible when I do that. So that's why I typed the program that way. And Nick is absolutely like my day-to-day overseer of training and making sure I'm doing the right things, I'm feeling the right way. He's usually there to trump all my bad ideas. And I have a couple other training partners who I rely on as well, like Matt Mills and a bunch of other friends that were there day-to-day and also um, – part of our community but um very cool getting back to the assessment portion it's kind of like a small math equation we create so we look at objectively what types of behaviors what type of performance under the hood needs to be happening and what actual needs need to be met to win this competition and i start to create like this imaginary type of person in my head and then i look at the athlete who i'm working with who i've already developed some trust some faith and we've like developed a mutual vision for them and I start to look at these two different imaginary people and I see what the difference is and the difference is really where the majority of development of the program is going to be so once we see that difference that is where we start so we reverse engineer from there and we create our peak first ideally what's the last step of training that we need to take this client to turn into this person who's going to win the contest and we briefly outline and reverse engineer all the programming from there and then I type it forward, or Nick, or whoever uh, performance vibe coach is doing it. Then we type it all the way forward in real time. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So basically, you're getting the the, the end goal, creating this um, this superhuman being in your head who's going to blitz the strongman comp. You're then comparing it to uh, the individual sitting in front of you. It's okay. He needs he needs this, this, and this to to be this imaginary uh, uh, character. Uh, or being that's going to win the comp and then you reverse periodize from there as to what things need to be happening uh, close to the comp and then you know right back to where do you actually start with what elements you uh, you want to tackle first be it uh, you know psychological emotional uh, and obviously the uh, performance in the gym aspect as well 
Yeah. So we've just found that like taking that like little bit of extra time to meld it all together is what makes the program more effective because then we're actually training qualities that ho- or not, hopefully will give us the performance outcomes we want because the biggest thing that I've noticed recently is are the exercises you're prescribing, these protocols you're prescribing, are they actually doing what you think they're doing? Like yeah. are you hoping to do something in like a phosphagen world but is it really coming out like a non-oxidative glycolytic or vice versa are the athletes even doing what you want them to do like is there even comprehension going on so we found that like having this extended assessment period an extended uh relationship with the athlete in like a coach athlete way before we start programming really made a big difference in the success of the athlete and the actual outcomes we get in training Awesome. So, Andrew, if we go back to your example now, so you'd identified a few qualities that you needed 12 weeks out. Obviously, uh, there was a heavy neurological demand, so you wanted to be strong, but the work is glycolytic, so you need to be able to use glycogen well as a fuel. You needed to have these emotional zones to hit, so you're in the right psychological state to express your strength. So how did you go about working those qualities into your actual training? So... um it's funny, my training for this con- for that contest is starting to fade as I start training for the next one. <laughs> but briefly, uh, I remember it started with an alarm phase. So knowing that these glycolytic adaptations that we make uh, because of like the literature we all share can be maintained relatively well once they've been made with some training. So that glycolytic alarm phase I did was able to create a little bit of a super compensation in my glycolytic abilities generally. And then uh, I took a small deload after that and then just focused on maintaining that general glycolytic ability while specifically refining which movements I wanted to do over time. And because there was only one event demand of that, I mainly did some of the glycolytic work through movement preps. So I could uh, almost not train one event altogether, but get all the training adaptation I need from it Mm. in small bursts throughout the week. Okay. And that was able to give me a much greater, like, I guess, meat portion of your training. So what was, event, what was the event that, um, the one that you needed the anaerobic glycolytic, this, this energy system, what was the main event that you, you felt that you were going to be challenged by and that uh, sounds like it influenced a lot of your training design anyway? Uh, Ironically enough, the medley, I, I, I'm happy with like the internal physiology I displayed on the medley. Like I wasn't very tired after. I was able to work at a high pace and uh, not be intimidated by a high heart rate during the event. Yep. I mean, the shoes is a variable you can't necessarily train for. Um, that just happens sometimes. Then just in flooring and you need to be aware of it. But um, and, yeah, and, and, it influenced and jump- like, the movement prep, not as much as the actual training. Yes, so you spent first phase uh, developing an adaptation that would help you, that would get you through the, the medley, and then you just address that in movement prep thereafter. So, what was? Can you give us an yep. example of what you would do to to build that glycolytic system? So during the alarm phase mm. was a great like I like alarm phases because they're great times to be multifaceted. So you can apply these glycolytic energy system uh, protocols to movements I'm actually doing in contest. So I can now train these movements glycolytically early on, develop a lot of work and time under tension with them and start the learning process. So that when I transition into the actual training, like intensification and accumulation phases, um, I already have a better base than I hopefully would have without doing them. So I did some glycolytic work on the 18 inch deadlift, on yoke, 
and then just some general movements like split squat, um, things like that. Yeah, so that okay. way I was able to get that general adaptation I wanted and using a modality that was kind of specific. Relevant. So that's when I coined the term semi-specific. Okay, yeah, and, awesome. and, and for our, our listeners, um, we're talking what sort of uh, time frame for the anaerobic glycolytic because the, the short 10 to 15 seconds is that uh, creatine phosphate so that we're not really tapping into the anaerobic glycolytic so is it sort of uh, 10 to 45 seconds like or what sort of uh, time frame were you, were you doing the, the deadlifts and the supioke and, and, and stuff like that to, to get that um, base level up from which you could then maintain uh, up until the event so uh, you can go a couple different ways uh, I like using sets of 90 seconds because you don't need much total sets. And 90 seconds is just about as non-oxidative as it gets. Um, the thing you have to worry about there is safety. So you have to make sure the athlete is prepared enough uh, integrity-wise with the movement to prescribe that. Yeah. But again, if you're only doing it for maybe two to three sets tops, um, it's not a huge deal. But typically I'll do something in like that 40-second to like maybe 30 to 50 second more realistically true work range so that doesn't mean the protocol may last 30 seconds the protocol could very well last 60 to 90 seconds yep. but i'm saying 30 seconds of true work mm-hmm. which yeah, is different yeah. of course fascinating um and i understand where you're coming from there like uh for me you know giving me 90 seconds of anything you know, my form is going to uh, start breaking down uh, pretty rapidly after a certain point. And I guess that's what you're referring to, making sure that the athlete can actually, you know, maintain the correct movement or uh, movement patterns in those longer duration, uh, working that an anaerobic glycolytic. And, and also, you mentioned 90 seconds. Is that where you feel, you know, going beyond that, it's starting to tip into that oxidative uh, energy system? Uh, so I kind of couple uh, aerobic. things there. Yeah. Um, no, no, great. Uh, the first thing is, uh, I don't mind going into oxidative glycolysis. I just try not to do it with like these uh, pretty like semi-specific movements, just because a they're either going to be so light or so taxing yeah. that we can't go in there too many more times. But I definitely don't mind taking like a lower complexity move into oxidative glycolysis yep. prior to switching to that full aerobic. It's not often I take actual lifts into that full aerobic phase, but that's typically a totally different portion of training. Um, the reason I like the 90 seconds uh, is because I've noticed that if you have enough arousal, you can basically keep your shit together for 90 seconds. But because of what I briefly mentioned, that alarm phase is a critical learning period. I don't prescribe 90 seconds unless I really trust the athlete or they're advanced because under this like critical learning period of just doing these sports specific moves for the first time in a training frame, I don't really want to accumulate any bad reps because this is a crucial time. Mm, yeah. Like if you're going to have any bad reps or missed reps, let it be in the really, really heavy intensification phase where yeah. even, you know, isometrically battling out a rep has some more worth versus you just missing 55% of your deadlift max for sets of whatever it might have been just because you wanted to work extra hard. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And, and, yeah. and also, um, Andrew, I suppose the, the, the potential for in that early uh, phase of programming where you're, you know, laying down arguably uh, infrastructure, you know, stability, you know, probably a, a prime time to induce an injury at the at the start of your prep and then, you know, no, no strongman comp. So, um, yeah, I, I totally get where you're coming from there. 
Yeah, no. So uh, when I conduct my seminars or talk about periodization, we have the three S's of the alarm phases. Uh, so I'll kind of give this out to you guys. So the three S's to program an alarm phase are safety, slaughter, and spare. And they just refer to different portions of programming it. So safety is kind of what I already touched on. Make sure that although you're like it's glycolytic or aerobic or even phosphogenic in the right environment, like whatever your alarm phase is about, make sure that it's guaranteed safe. That like no matter how hard you're working them, yeah. they are not going to get hurt. Like you said, it's the worst way to obviously start a training block. Slaughter means because it's only a two or three week top phase it has to be extremely difficult to induce the supercompensation yeah. and it must be of a secondary or tertiary quality. So if you do that portion wrong, it basically just turns into an extremely difficult microcycle, and that's very different and way less useful. The purpose of the alarm phase is to take the secondary or tertiary quality and like peak it temporarily so you can last longer in the next phase of training or work harder or whatever it may be. You're more prepared for the next phase, which is your accumulation of your primary fatigue to peak off of, yeah. you're in a better spot to do that because of the alarm phase. And then okay. lastly is spare. It's a constant reminder to not let it go past two or three weeks, that it is an alarm phase. It's not just some stupid, really difficult microcycle. Awesome, man. That's that's beautiful how you broke that down. Um, I'm going to start using that. Uh, the, the Dubois method, uh, three S's, uh, uh, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> take it, share it, tell everybody. I, I, I'm already telling everyone to do the uh, primal, you know, when they go into that uh, work set. But it, it, would there also be, um, do you feel, um, you know, from a, the human performance perspective, there's a physiological carryover where you're hoping to get some super compensation, but... To me, it would sound like that that phase almost uh, so there's something to be said for like getting the body or the individual athlete used to a certain work capacity and a certain uh, intensity of effort in session. It sounds like that initial alarm phase would sort of set them up to a uh, to be familiar with a certain level of fatigue and, mm. like you said, elevated heart rate and 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 to be honest, it probably sounds like the rest of the the uh if it's done correctly the rest of the 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 mesocycles coming into the into the meat would be comparatively More easier yeah. easier almost like there's something to be said for Absolutely. starting hard like an element of hard that you can do hard mm. because you know that you could do like punching out one rms in the first week unlikely but but something with a very high uh level of effort like you described and then you know, it's almost like you're then cruising into the finish line and, and your perception of what's hard thereafter. So it sounds like there would be a huge psychological component to that style of programming as well. Absolutely, and I think what especially makes it potent with the performance vibe, like, uh, you know, morals and methodology is that we really like to, like, earn our right and we really like to get that satisfaction from working hard to start the confidence ball. So there's, like, a off-the-note effect of this training block that really gets things going because right off the bat you're getting smacked and humbled and before you even get to necessarily touch like above 50 or 60 percent of your max you've already worked harder than ever and made some type of adaptation that is tangibly you know is making you better mm. so not only are you uh have a high demand for work there's also a high satisfaction component and it starts things very very quickly 
So it develops the coach-athlete relationship really well, yeah. very yes. quickly, because we go from that assessment period right into this humbling, oh, why are you doing this, blah, blah, blah. You know, you get some jokes flowing, and it, it really does a lot for just not creating a physical, but an emotional and a team-oriented environment that makes you more likely to compete sounds absolutely awesome and and i i don't doubt that this is part of the success of of your structure into a, a meet would be the way you've structured this initial alarm phase and the reason i i sort of uh, honing in on this element tommy is that i had a chat with uh menno hensemans who you, you probably may have heard of andrew and we we're talking about um basically a, a, a range frequency theory which i'm you're probably aware of andrew but it's to do with like um the exposure to something initially and then the psychologically uh, what happens thereafter and the uh, when you put like a hand in, in really cold water you know you do it gradually you can handle the cold but you put it in aggressively like there's it's how you perceive uh, a level of uh, effort and we're, we're using this range frequency theory in the context of a dieting phase where there's something to be said by, by starting a little more robustly, a little harder, a little more aggressively, because mm. then it's like like what you're describing there, Andrew, this this, this intense uh, intensity of effort at the start. And then, you know, the dieting phase, there's much smaller increments after that, much, much slighter uh, energy reduction, and it, and it is perceived as being easier because you're, you started hard, it was really tough initially, you, you sort of endured a, a, a more intense start to the, the dieting phase, but then afterwards it was it all seemed relatively easy, where if you do it the reverse, you start really slowly, then it's always, you're pushing shit uphill, you know, it's always getting harder and harder and harder and harder, where, so there's something to be said for what you're doing there, Andrew, it's sort of starting with this, this high level of uh, perceived effort, then, you know, you can legitimately, by the sounds of it, psychologically add uh, or apply more intensity elsewhere because you've endured this uh, and there's probably some physiological carryover, like you said, a super compensation for that energy system as well. I think it's awesome. Yeah, it's great because especially uh, accumulation phases and that type of like longer training block are often accompanied by monotony and it's just yeah. kind of easier to do the same things often after you've already been slaughtered a little bit yeah. and it just uh, allows for much more uh, like emotional refinement too like when you're not breathing super heavy and you're not dog tired you're not dead you can take that little bit of extra energy and you're more likely to focus it on the lift and being mindful and crushing the lift yeah. because you've like you're almost appreciative of that extra energy yeah, yeah. absolutely Okay, so if we move from the alarm phase into your next block of training, how did you take that quality that you built in the first one? How do you keep a bit? Move it into the movement prep to sustain that system, and 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 what did that look like for your second block of training before we get to the primary quality of that block? Yeah, so basically, uh, like I briefly mentioned on my last podcast, in my most elite programming, I I guess I kind of use a concurrent type of periodization so most of that glycolytic work is going to be plugged into my substrate or my like growth hormone day uh that's kind of what i call it so uh like about 60 ish percent of that glycolytic volume i want to transfer across the week goes into this day and that's usually my first day of the week so i can get my growth hormone response for the week and my first uh 
sports specific training session which comes directly after that are events that i want to prime glycolytically where i feel like that some type of glycolytic work can prime their adaptations either or so that's how i set up the first half of the week and then by the time the second half of the week comes i'm basically done with my glycolytic work so i guess in this sense you can call it a little bit conjugate that on the end of the week i tend to focus on uh neurological and dht like hormone adaptations so this becomes the cyclic hormone uh weekly cycle of priming growth hormone then priming catecholamines and cortisol and if you think about it in a cyclic manner growth hormone dhea and that type of environment with high amounts of glucose uptake are almost going to be anti-catecholamine so in a way the first half of the week is restoring you hormonally from the uh, previous second half of the week and like thus it becomes cyclic uh, so hormonally, you're fresh in a sense that you're primed for the session before you, but because of the residual fatigue, like I'll, I guess this is a nice time to transition to the primary training goals of doing monotonous neurological lifting in different environments, you're constantly able to do the task demanded of you because the task demanded of you is in uh, understanding of this hormone cycle that I've created throughout the week. So you can do it and you can continue to work on that grit and that mental toughness and developing that emotion with those lifts while just being able to get by. Absolutely awesome. So that uh, do you find that that one day at the start of the week, the, the glycolytic day, the growth hormone uh, inducing day, uh, that's enough to sustain the, the work that you did uh, for the three weeks prior, like uh, once a week sessions enough to keep that that uh, energy system in check so it can perform so on game day? It's not just once a week. It's kind of like that 60 to 60-ish percent day. So it's that stress bomb of glycolytic growth hormone for the day. And then the next day has a, like probably like 20 to 30%. And then right. the okay. last training day of the week, We'll probably have a little bit inherently because it's strongman. So it almost looks like a downgraded curve throughout the week. Okay. So like linearly going down, you have 60, then 20, then maybe 10%. And then on the other half of the week, we have something that like crosses it. So if you're going to say that first day of the week is mostly non-glycolytic growth hormone, that means it's going to be the least neurological, obviously, yeah. and the least to do with DHT and catecholamines in the sense that correlate to maximum strength. So then that curve is going the exact opposite direction. Very cool. And is there any, uh, sorry, Tommy, mm-hmm. just jump in there. Is there any um, uh, rest days there at the end of the week where they, uh, or do you train them, you know, five, six days a week? Where do the, yeah, I go uh, where five the days, days? Uh, in this type of, like, or in this specific block and this type of block, day three is what I call a regen or a restorative day. So basically, especially in this type of block, you'd go in there and you would just do tons of biomechanical work a lot of breathing and um, a lot of just like very, very low intensity and low impact uh, aerobic work to induce some restoration uh, internally as well as biomechanically. And that's usually enough to like get you going through the rest of the week. And uh, yeah, you have two off days of training typically. And is that one of the off days or that is still a training day? No, that is a program day. So you're still going to whatever facility it may be and you still have some work to do on the paper. Very good. So Saturday, Sunday, have a sleep in. Yeah, that might be a little different. So you might start by getting on the treadmill for 15 minutes with a heart rate range. Then you might come off of it and might do some biomechanical work and positioning work. You might do a little bit of a med ball throw, and then you might get back on the treadmill one more time before you go home. So 
so for our listeners just to um, break that down so there'll be four lifting weights type days and one you are lifting weights but lighter capacity aerobic work um, biomechanical work in there as well yes Um, yeah you could absolutely say that Andrew when you talk about the hormone response to the work that you're doing how much of an impact do you think that's actually having Uh, truthfully I think it's great and the reason I recently have found the validity in it is because I've been able to get smart enough to really understand the science behind what's making it go so well and I always have to thank Dr. Pat Davidson for turning me on to everything he's turned me on to and really giving me the abilities to objectively read basically anything I want so um, the biggest thing that people are married to in their head is that all hormones are the same and even like within testosterone and growth hormone there's variances and there's a difference between acute and chronic hormonal responses, and they both have to do with different environments. So there's, if you go get a blood test, that is probably gonna test like, you know, a chronic testosterone. But if we tested testosterone throughout training and throughout the day, we understand that just like blood pressure, it's a constantly basically changing measure. It might not be changing as much as blood pressure, but it is altered by the things you do. So that means there's acute and chronic and carpedian and many, many different uh, things that control the amount of testosterone in your blood minute to minute, just like growth hormone and ultimately everything else in your body. People are, uh, in my opinion, overuse the word homeostasis. The way I describe it is homeostasis literally only refers to things that will kill you. So that concept of the deviation within a small range. So that's like calcium, sodium, your blood pH, you know, your like all these different things that need to be within a certain range. And if they deviate from that, you're literally dead. In my opinion, anything outside of that is allostasis, meaning it encompasses emotion, environment, past experiences, things like your competition coming up. So all these different things can tangibly change your physiology and your hormones. And just recognizing that is the first step to understanding it. So with that being said, if you want to improve, let's say, a max law, If you've done max log, you know that it's not true that it like it can't just be a phosphagen. Just because of the nature of the lift and the environment and being in a competition, your heart rate's going to be high, and you're going to be in a place where you're damn straight going through at least more than normal non-oxidative glycolysis. So, to some degree, we can make the effort saying that tons of maybe not tons, but excuse me, enough non-oxidative glycolytic fibers under the hood of your quads and triceps would in fact be beneficial and loud. And we know this is true because if you talk to anyone who's strong, they tell you that a shit ton of accessory work gets you strong. They don't know why, but they know that doing a shit ton of accessory work somehow gets you strong. So that gives us an understanding that there is some non-oxidative glycolytic intervention with maximum strength that matters. We might not know how much it matters, but it matters at least a little bit. So that's why I like plug in my log day and whatever other glycolytic event I had that medley in after that substrate day. So now you're making sure that, you know, maybe these hormones and all these acute responses I'm talking about are bullshit. Maybe the EGF doesn't respond the way I say it does, and that's all bullshit. I'm sorry, I didn't realize I'm cursing. Guys, it's just fine. That's that's totally fine. Okay. Let's say I'm all wrong. We still know that accessory work somehow gets you stronger. So if we do a ton of accessory work on the right muscles the day before, and then make you hit heavy log after, you can still hit a decently heavy log. 
wouldn't you then be in a position to be hit more than that dog? So even on a logical basis, I always thought I was on the right track, but more just understanding that there's differences in hormones and what's happening and actual exercise response to training and breaking down what's actually happening in training uh, has, I think, given it much, much more validity over time. Yeah, well, I suppose you're um, you're also drawing a lot from what you've actually seen work, and and like you said, it might be a question mark as to whether these uh, these more chronic levels of, of growth hormone and testosterone are actually manifesting to uh, something meaningful. But you're seeing a, a a great correlation with doing the the glycolytic work the day prior, then the log lift the day after. Like you're seeing, you know, now maybe it could well be the you know it just hasn't been proved. In, uh, in a research setting yet so mm. um, and, I, and I love how you just break it down from a, um, a, a, a I guess a physiological perspective what's actually happening and if more of this it could constitute to be better for this event I love that man like thinking uh, thinking laterally like, laterally like that is, 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 is awesome I think uh, early on I was told to not be married to any system and I think that's what's given me the opportunity to learn and pulse from so many people because like even when someone I know is dumb is talking about training, I listen. Like, yeah. I'm really obsessed with training and I really do listen and read from everybody. Even if I know an article is bad, I sometimes read it anyway just to like have a brain response to it. And I think that's done a lot for me because I've just been able to be like, holy shit, like, excuse me. I'm like, God, how's this guy so strong? Let me go ask him. So I walk over and I'm like, hey, you're incredible. Like, what do you think helped you the most? Like, I try to ask people the same questions and collect some data. And I always ask the strongest person I can find. And like that accessory work was something that bonkered me so much. People were just like, oh, I just do tons of triceps. My log is huge. Well, how much triceps do you really do? Yeah. I do like 40 sets. And it's like, oh, two or three times a week too, huh? Well, I mean, you damn well better have like incredible log press if you're doing that much tricep. Yeah. So maybe that exact example doesn't show us the return in the training that you might get because it's hard to justify doing that much volume for some small return but like i said it does tell us there's something to it there's yeah. something to having fibers you know those transmutative fibers that can be intensely intensely non-oxidative that somehow correlate highly to strength and i think mm -hmm. if for nothing else it's just like a timing thing like as you start to run out of creatine phosphate like you're gonna have to tap into something immediately yeah. and we know that all these energy systems are interwound with each other and percentages of each other yeah. the whole time. Yeah. So maybe those small shifts aren't as much of a, maybe this non-oxidative isn't getting you stronger, but you're more prepared. So when you run out of creatine phosphate, that next runner up in line and that next batter at bat is at least leveled close enough to your phosphagen system to continue and finish the job. So maybe it's not so much that glycolysis can get you stronger, but maybe it's when you run out of creatine, which everyone's eventually going to, you're ready to finish the job and the performance outcome you want. And and, yeah. and also, um, while we're discussing it, Andrew, I think that uh, you know the psychological, you know, maybe for someone that doesn't do it uh, like you're describing, and then when they have to do it, you know, at the event, you know, physically they might they might feel maybe a little nauseated or, or whatever, and 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 just their ability to deal psychologically with with how the body's responding to that environment could be the the reason they they they, they back off a little neural drive and they they don't lift the the log or as many reps or whatever whatever so yeah i mean who knows what weird and wonderful things are happening under the hood uh, yeah. but yeah it's it's it, i love it 
that's an amazing transition, actually, because the next thing I kind of wanted to talk about is behavior and environment, uh, especially in peaking, especially in peaking and in strongman. I think numbers of the actual loads lifted in the contest-specific events matter almost minimally. Yeah. I can honestly and unbiasedly say in a, like the actual peaking. So my actual peaking cycles are only two to four weeks. They follow similar rules to alarm phases. But my actual peaking cycles, I can genuinely say that intensity or actual intensity, so actual load used, could be as low as my fourth priority. And that's because the strength has been developed and the actual load or your actual capabilities should be very well masked by fatigue. So the only thing I can actually do without compromising your peak or without compromising your health is to alter your behavior. So okay. I think there is much greater transfer to performance when you put athletes in environments and training that not only like capitalize on their weaknesses, but force them to push past them. I think that creates much more potent and powerful peaks. So for example, let's take this log press. It's so easy to hit a PR in your home gym when you've done everything perfect. It's your house, you're 20 yeah. minutes away, <laughs> you had the perfect pre-workout meal, yep. you hit no traffic, all your warm-up sets, you had 10 minutes dressed. It's easy to hit a PR then. It's not easy to hit a PR when your heart rate's high because you're in a place you've never been, you've never touched this log before 30 minutes ago, people are yelling at you and there's short rest. So now, if we talk about that same log press, when we talk about this competition environment, you realize there's a huge disparity in the transfer of training. Mm, so yeah. that's why that assessment process is so important in the performance vibe methodology, because it's what's actually happening. So, like I said, using that same example of glycolysis and phosphagen, like that transfer, if your heart rate's elevated and you're in a new place and you have shorter rest, now internally this log press is totally different. 100%, so yeah. creating an environment on the training side of it where the athlete can still hit maybe ideally 90% of their contest, like what they want to hit in contest, but their heart rate's high and they're dealing with those RPP-like gross metabolic, you know, like, uh, uh, like, you know, that, uh, excuse me, that gross metabolic lactic-like feels in the muscles, yeah. but still hit that 90% single, that's a much, much better sign, in my opinion, than just being able to hit a PR two weeks out. Because the PR is not displaying anything else than proper biomechanical levers being put into place with high amounts of force production. Mm, that's yeah. what hits PR. But hitting a lift under a lot of fatigue that's near a PR, I think shows much more because you're able to hit those same levers and that same force production in an environment that's much, much di more difficult. That's that's awesome. And and, and probably uh, you would also say that that heightened arousal that you know is going to be there on the day would fill in that gap. So it's almost like they, they don't, like you said, have to hit that PR in that, that peaking phase because a little short of the PR with the arousal and everything else, if they can deal with the environment, mm. will tick them over the, get that, 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 the numbers that you actually want. Um, is that the way you would also look at it too, Andrew? The fact that, that on 100%. the day, they, yeah. And if you've ever been to any competition ever, that's why nobody warms up as much as they do in the gym. Even like the biggest thing you can get caught up in, especially in strongman, but realistically any sport, is trying to mimic your training habits exactly the same 
in the competition day because it's like reading a book and expecting a different ending. You are not training yeah. anymore. Training is over, and it's emotional. Competition, something we, me and Nick were talking about, is an emotional closure. You just ch- worked on changing who you are for 12 weeks, and all of a sudden ends in one or maybe two days, very, very quickly, abruptly, and it's a totally different environment. So it's difficult. And that's why you don't need to warm up the same way you do it as you would in training. The needs are different. You don't need to, also, you don't need to like create these environments so you can handle these massive loads of training. Realistically, a competition is five very, very emotional bouts of exercise that aren't very, you know, like energetically taxing when you put them on paper. They're so taxing because of the emotions and how many hours you spend there. But realistically, you're not doing all that much. So Mm. the needs and the mind and everything centered behind training and competition the day of are almost opposite. Yeah. Uh, I want to wrap this, uh, you know, this, I guess, 12-week block coming into a meetup shortly, then go to your... I uh, want to find out the supplements that you like to use to enhance arousal and that type of stuff, and and maybe some movement patterns for our listeners to uh, to get them to perform well in gym sessions or, or even before the meet. What um, when you say in that peaking phase, you want to I guess emulate more closely to what's actually going to happen on the day, you know, actual uh, PR hit, uh, you know, fourth in, 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 in priority of things, it's more creating the environment. So what would you do, say, for that? I mean, we've used the log example, so we'll do that again. Um, how would you structure the training to, to be similar? Do you go to a different gym? Do you, you know, shorter rest periods? Like, what are you, what are you doing to make it similar to what's it, what it's going to look like on the day? So I look at the athlete first, and I'm like, all right, well, if this is a, a nervous person, let's okay. like crank some anxiety into these people. So I might give them a, a warm-up that they hate or a warm-up that's very glycolytic cool. so that they're kind of like a little bit out of whack when they get to that log. Yeah. And yeah, I'll throw in uh, some short rest. I'll tell them just work, like ignoring numbers, don't count what's on the weight. Make 20-pound jumps, hit the heaviest weight you can. Still don't count the weight when you're done take 40 pounds off and do this protocol of singles with short rest. So that's how I maybe account for a load not being as important. Just do the heaviest number you can. Who cares what the number is? And just do this work. So maybe I'll just literally just focus on making them work in environments they suck at or making them work in overcoming performance anxiety and just making them lift as heavy as they possibly can. Even if it's realistically 70% of their max because they're so messed up or if it's a PR and they don't know it. It doesn't really matter in that moment. It just has to be the most neurological output this human being is willing to give. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And that's why I say the absolute load isn't as important as just trying and working. It, it, it sounds like that you would uh, ideally need to be there every step of the way. Like, would you, if it is coaching someone online, do you get to, do, do you ask them to, you know, record these sessions so, so you can see how they've been performing? How do you keep, uh, a tab on uh, that final phase or do you actually try to get them out to see you and you're in the gym session yelling out primal in their ear as they as they go in and do the set <laughs> yeah everyone knows I'm kind of a hype man <laughs> I do recommend and try to see all my athletes as much as possible just because the more time you can see them the better 
but this is part of the reason why we put so much emphasis on the coach-athlete relationship early on. So that by the time peaking comes, like I emotionally care about my athletes a lot and each and every one of them individually, and they all know that. And that's just you can't dissociate from that as a coach. I think everyone should embrace it. Of course, this is like I say, a professional coach-athlete relationship. But if they believe in you, they're going to train different than if they think that you're just blowing smoke up their butt. Yeah. So by this point, uh, we have a good relationship. I have a very robust weekly feedback system that includes subjective, objective, and video feedback. And it's weekly yeah. and mandatory. Like You won't get the next week's program if you don't uh, contact me. Yep. So... That also creates some continuity to make sure that I'm not prescribing the next thing unless I know that there's a check mark next to what you did last week. And that's not just to be like, oh, like a military, we got to do this, this, and this. It's to make sure, like, did you get what I wanted out of it? Where are you at? Where are we at? If this is the date I wanted us to be prepped for neurological work for, where are we realistically at in comparison to that date? Yeah. So it just more lets me make sure that everything is running smooth and that they're exemplifying the behaviors I want. I think that through very good language uh, and like choosing the right words and spending more time on each individual program I write, I've been able to also become a more effective coach because I use less specific words to get the results I want. So I've just found better wording to get someone to that primal state without maybe leading them on or using numbers as a guide to get them primal. Because the last thing I want to do is contradict myself and use like, hey, like I really hope you get that 340 log the day of, but all this time we've been talking about being anti-categorical. Yeah. And you know what I'm saying? Hmm. So through good language, I think I've been able to enhance the peak and my coach-athlete relationship a little bit more. Because if you just do exactly what the words say, then the environment creates itself. And again, I think that's why it's more important than actual load. Yeah, I've been thinking quite a lot about training environments, Rudin, since we had that chat with Dr. Jordan Shallow, who you might know, Andrew, he's a, an elite powerlifter and came from a pro hockey background, and he was discussing the difference between moving from a team sport where you travel around a lot into the lone wolf sport of powerlifting and how he's seen a lot of success with guys that do have a sports background because little things that happen on the day that you know they're not married to their routines and their processes they have yeah. to train in uncomfortable environments and Rodan, we had a conversation about switching training environments which i yeah. do do but i think just environments in general for whatever you're trying to yeah. get uh, done in agreed. your life like being deliberate about creating a, a space because it it just has this innate uh, influence on your psychology yeah it's such a huge part of it and and that just to jump in there uh tommy um you know i encourage my athletes prepping for a show you know in the final block to to maybe go to a even for the whole preparation go to a different gym, gym. get a membership for six months somewhere different new environment you yeah. know it's it's specific to the competition preparation or at the very least in the final block no distractions at the local gym you know so yeah i completely agree the 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 power of uh, influence that a, a change in environment can certainly have mm. be it good or bad so apart from the environment andrew one of the things that rawdon mentioned that we wanted to talk about was you know influencing your mental and emotional state with supplementation which is something that you've looked into so can we can we sort of unpack yeah. a little bit of uh, what goes on there what's your go-to there are, are any of them worthwhile oh uh, yeah totally so uh just like anecdotally about me before we dive any deeper mm. i have um like a pretty chronic comt deficiency so uh catch and o methyltransferase is one of the enzymes that aids in like 
uh, altering like the parent compound dopamine into its catecholamine uh, counterparts. And yep. a deficiency could lead to uh, increased time of these catecholamines at the receptor, increased sensitivity, or like increased potency in half-life. So I personally uh, stay away from stimulants. If anyone knows me personally, like they know they hit me really hard. So that's kind of what's led me to finding and seeking out these alternate supplements for competition because they don't impact my heart directly and they're not as stimulatory systemically. Yeah. So I can kind of use my own endogenous catecholamines and emotion to mix with them. And I guess that would be similar to someone supplementing some caffeine. But I just like like to point that out there. Okay. Uh, I get really bad side effects even above 200 milligrams. On, on caffeine. Yeah, so I'm out there. As, as, as Tom, Tommy and I are necking uh, coffee number four or five this morning, yeah, well, <laughs> you, you're not, you're not I, I alone. Was, I, I had 300 milligrams from a drink a couple weeks ago, um, not to get too far off into a rant, but I was literally on the floor having heart palpitations with my feet up. Really? <laughs> wow. Yeah, it gets bad sometimes. I like, didn't have much food in me. It was right first thing in the morning, and I was like seeing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Brutal. Very funny. All right. But, uh, cool. All right. So stimulants uh, to to a side. <laughs> yeah. Where do you go Not from there then? Not too good for me. Yeah, neurotropics, and I think I'm really big into using some minerals in combination with some other supplements. Just create a total systemic environment. So neurotropics kind of are the first things I'll dive into because they're on their on their own. Um, New and Alpha GPC are my favorite. I have a video on Alpha GPC, and I'm just about to release one on New But in short. Alpha glycerol phosphocholine or alpha GPC is an extremely bioavailable choline source that can cross the blood brain barrier. Um, it's kind of expensive, but doses at 600 milligrams have shown extreme increases in power. And anecdotally, when you take it, it's like that neurological excitability effect. Like you kind of just want to jump around and spike stuff and like be explosive. And it feels like that. So I really like that for top end phosphogen neurological work because it gives you that tensile strength, that rigidity, that uh, neurological responsiveness, and it's very, very good at that. And it acts synergistically with a lot of things. So it can be taken as a standalone or mix it with other stuff. And Andrew, is that a little like creatine where if your acetylcholine levels are lowish, it'll have a more profound impact on performance or across the board, it, it, it seems to enhance uh, that yeah, absolutely. neural aspect? When I, when I'm extra fatigued or in people that like, you know, you kind of just like a little bit of know that a slow acetylcholine type of personality in someone as low as 300 milligrams makes a difference. Okay. So across the board. I, it's uh, great stuff. It feels very good. Like, especially with performance. And this is why athletes are huge about it. And athletes are great at knowing that practice isn't game day and training isn't competition. They know that their body intuitively likes things and it's completely unmarried to science. Like you guys know, there's plenty of pro players have these little weird habitual things. Yeah. And those are the things you want to keep. Things that make you feel good are mm. key to performing well. Yes. And so would you use Alpha GPC throughout the training cycle or that last peak week? Or do you sort of keep it up the sleeve for game day? What's your approach? Uh, it depends. I tell people, to t like, just like creatine, I tell people to take it with, like, your phosphagen stuff. So it really just depends on what your training cycle looks like. Mm. Like, I think it would be kind of a, not a waste, but I can't say that it would help as much to take alpha GPC and do, like, 
tons of glycolytic work or sets of 20 or anything. Okay. It's like the intended use of the drug isn't meant for that. So although it may help, it's not the intended use and it's not the maximum benefit. Okay. Okay, cool. So whenever that might be for you. And uh, especially in Strongman, like the day of, competition can last like eight hours or more. Yep. I like to use it in a bit of a pulsatory manner. So what, uh, a couple hundred milligrams at a go at a time? Yeah, so I might, like, I think uh, I totaled 1,200 milligrams at uh, the competition I did okay. in Kentucky, the Beast of Bluegrass recently. Mm -hmm. So I think I took, like, 600 to start, 300, 300, 300. And uh, just to, before we move on from uh, the Alpha GPC, stimulatory, so having the evening, is it going to keep uh, our listeners awake, or it, you should be able to switch off and go to sleep? Oh, uh, you should be able to switch off. So because like you just have more choline flowing through you and flowing through your neuromuscular junctions, and then choline has to bind with acetate and be synthesized ultimately into acetylcholine. Because uh, endogenously we do this naturally through serine. Serine synthesizes into acetylcholine ultimately. So we're just kind of cutting the process short. So like you should theoretically be able to take it and go to bed. If you can't go to sleep, that's because of a side effect. I wouldn't say it's necessarily because of the supplement itself. Like, you know, caffeine side effect is that energetic feel. Like, yes. the side effect of Alpha GPC is feeling that excitability and that neurological, like, tense and rigidity. You mm. know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, like, you should be able to go to sleep. But if you can't, that's because the supplement is still so novel to you that you feel that side effect. Yeah. And if you have uh, restless leg syndrome then you'll be getting nice, nice, really good solid kicks at night if you're... Uh... You'll have a full night of leg press ahead of you. <laughs> Very good. Uh, no disrespect to anyone that has rested legs syndrome, of course. Oh, those poor guys. I'm sorry. Mm. Mm. Um, All right, so the what next else? one I'd like to cover is Nupept. Nupept is also a neurotropic. Uh, it's been said that it's uh, up to 100 or 1,000, I don't remember, times more of, uh, potent and have better affinity to the receptor than the Racetam family compounds. Okay. So um, as far as I know, uh, the best effects for Nupept are inhibiting, inhibiting glutamate toxicity. So that's like uh, the neurological effect of taking too much stimulants or being hyper aroused. Nupept can give those types of people the anti-anxiety and that cool zone feel that they want. Okay. Or it can bring you up to that as well. Um, through activating endocannabinoid receptors in the motor cortex, actually. Um, they're throughout the brain, but specifically in the motor cortex, they can influence decision-making for the better, and um, similar types of creativity and uh, sport precision in the skill. So it gives you that nice, calm demeanor, calculated, uh, so you can really apply yourself on game day with that one. Absolutely. And, and oh, no. Sorry, you guys... The, the dog just got to my Olympic lifting shoes. Sorry okay. about that. He'd finish with the nut butter on the fridge. Tell us. Oh, yeah. He's upset about me talking for so long. It's okay. <laughs> He's going to have to deal with it. Sorry about that, guys. Andrew, well, um, I've um, played around with some of the racetam stuff, but I don't know much about Nupept. Like, what what is the compound? So, it is N-phenylacetyl-L-propylylglycine-ethyl-ester. Well, there you go. Note that out. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, <laughs> mate. That's what it is. And and do you sort of get it in a in a powder or a capsule? How, how's the the delivery? I've seen powders, but I've only ever experimented with like capsules and tinctures. Okay. And just for our, for our listeners that are obviously this is just uh, 
not the gospel, but uh, milligrams for that one made? Uh, and, and when would you take it? Sort of uh, a couple of hours before the event, or the morning of, or it has a one hour half life, but it seems to like kick around in your system for a little bit longer. And ten to thirty milligrams is uh, like a pretty ideal dose. You shouldn't need more than that. And if you want, you can take it multiple times a day. Okay, sounds good. Very nice. So Alpha GPC, the new Pept. Anything else on the hit list? Uh, those are pretty. I mean, I've like come to trust those pretty well. They act well together as well, like also. Mm-hmm. So I don't really experiment with any other cognitive uh, stuff other than those two. I think one that should get honorable mention if you're like one of those junkies for like cognitive and stimulant like pre-workout type things. Yeah. Uprazine A is a acetylcholine uh, esterase inhibitor, so that would just extend the half-life and uh, the sensitivity of whatever cognitive enhancements you'd like. And that's Hooperzine, yeah? Yeah, uh, H-U-P-E-R-I-Z-N-E, and then capital A, I believe. Okay. My spelling's atrocious. And for your clients that can handle caffeine, Andrew, is it are any of these synergistic with caffeine? Do you like the guys to have a, some caffeine as well, or these are fun? Oh, they or? all are, and like yeah. low-dose caffeine seems to be the best feel for people. So even my stimulant junkies, I don't really think use more than 300 milligrams of caffeine with this combination. Okay, and then... There uh, seems to be a balance to all of them that works well. Yeah. And then again, uh, half an hour, 45 minutes before you uh, said training uh, bout event? Oh, yeah, I would say get about that 30 or or so minutes before the training bout. Yeah. Okay, beautiful. And uh, just to wrap up the supplement side of things, you just mentioned, uh, you know, the minerals and whatnot. Is there anything... uh, Anything uh, interesting there that you like to do in the background for that um, yeah, so holistic Yeah, so my favorite stuff? combination is chromium and berberine. Uh, so chromium is the mineral cofactor at the insulin receptor. It also has some like functions on its own at all, uh, decreasing and altering the fates of glucose. Wow, I mean, if you understand or know this fact, uh, insulin facilitates... LPCT or L-carnitine palmitotransferase, which is the rate-limiting enzyme in beta oxidation, and chromium tends to attenuate and uh, elite, like increase sensitivity and uh, the amount of insulin released. So right. it can alter that as well. So in a low-carbohydrate environment, okay. it would be used to increase glycogen or the ability of your glucose to turn into glycogen and facilitate a longer response through beta oxidation and in a high carbohydrate environment it'll just hopefully preferentially shuttle as much as possible towards muscle glycogen yeah i know uh, yeah. a mutual uh friend of ours broderick uh, the evil genius loves uh he doesn't have many many supplements he lo- i mean other than the 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 ped side of things but for for actual over-the-counter supplements chromium's the one that he actually likes as well yeah, chromium's a great one, and uh, berberine is very, very synergistic with it. From what I understand, it acts very, very similar to metformin in mechanism, yeah. and metformin alters the geometry and sensitivity uh, to surface translocation of GLUT4. So yeah. GLUT4 is the protein that, uh, after insulin gets to the muscle cell, he talks to insulin and takes glucose the rest of the way. So he, uh, it's going to alter the geometry, so all receptor-based... Uh, like jobs in the human body are geometry based. So I learned this specifically through smell. 
Uh, there, we don't have many different types of receptors in our nose for smell, but they're extremely geometry sensitive. So all these aromatic compounds that flow through the nose, obviously all different chemical geometry. Um, and the sensitivity to the receptor and its shape is what's going to determine the affinity. So in this oh, wow. case, metformin or berberine are going to somehow change the shape of GLUT4 for it to be better at its job and they're gonna change how likely he is to move. Very yeah, cool, very yeah. cool. And uh, dosages for our, our listeners there for the berberine and uh, chromium, and it's just straight chromium, or is, I know that you can get a couple of different types of chromium. Yeah, there's chromium picolini, there's like a bunch of different types. Um, I try to just get like a decent quality chromium picolinate product with cinnamon yep. in it, just because it kind of acts synergistically and they make sense together. But like you can kind of do anything. I've used like different chromiums. I can't say that um, one is necessarily better than the other, just because I haven't researched like the specific types enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, I again I can't really speak to that. So 200 micrograms, all the way up to a milligram, depending on how much you're eating. Like if you're taking down like 200 or more carbs in a sitting, it's absolutely valid to take in a milligram of chromium. And if you're not eating a lot of carbs, then all the way down to the 200 microgram range is acceptable. Just and then the- berberine, I just typically say 500 milligrams. And then if I go to increase it, it would be in frequency, not in dose. And, and they are the 200 micrograms up to a gram. Is that with each meal or just uh, three times a day type thing? And, and same with um, the berberine? I use chromium like as needed. Okay. Uh, so I prescribe it in diet plans at the right time. So you right. can take it first thing in the morning if you have a high carb meal basically i tell people to take it when you want to secure the fates of the carbs and yeah. fats you're about to eat in the next meal beautiful okay that makes sense uh well andrew i mean there's still so much we could uh <laughs> talk about we'll have to get you back on yeah uh, back i mean on again but yeah we want to uh, i suppose next time we could cover the actual uh mobilization stuff uh when you get to the gym to enhance uh, performance on the day or at the meet but, um, There's a million things. There is. Making a list. They're making a list, yes. yeah. That's awesome, mate. That was fantastic today. Where can listeners get in contact with you, mate, if they're interested? So uh, you can reach out at theperformancevibe.com. We have a reach out section. Or you can reach out to us on social media, uh, Facebook or Instagram. We're the Performance Vibe. Beautiful. Awesome. Okay, absolute pleasure again to, ha- to have you on, mate. Definitely we'll get you back to cover the rest of those many, many topics that we've... Uh, Tommy's got a long list of uh, uh, things there that we, we didn't get around to covering, but uh, we can tackle that next time. But absolute pleasure, Great. and um, yeah, look forward to chatting again with you soon, mate. Absolutely, you guys are awesome. I love everything you guys do and how everything's going so far. Um, just like, let me know a date when you guys want, and we'll make it work. Awesome. Thank you, Andrew. Have a great night, guys. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.
We've got the Caesar cut now, a bit of, bit of wax in there, you know, for the yeah. things we do. The things you know, you when, do, when hey? you turn 30, it's all different, mate. Yes. But Triana, he's a, I think he's a legitimate mad scientist. And like we alluded to last time, I think big things from this guy in the industry moving yep. forward. I like uh, that program creation method, Rod, mm. and he starts with building the foundation of the client-coach relationship yep. and really getting clear on how to, I guess, you know, communicate to the client mm. what they're actually trying to achieve yep. with this because the programming's pretty pretty advanced you know he'll work on a certain quality yep. and then he may just to prolong the quality as he trains different systems he might work that into the movement prep of yes. the workout so he's got yes. all these there's lots going on yeah so you need to be focused as an athlete but the communication level yeah. from him has to be high as well I think that, awesome stuff yeah i think that was one of the big things that i really took away from him in this relationship that he uh, creates from the get-go from that mm. initial like we went in, in the first episode that that really breaking that that that, that lengthy initial assessment yeah. really getting the, the to know the individual athlete that he's going to work with but there seems to be uh, reiterated all the way through the process yes. and uh, something that he prides himself on and i guess the results speak for themselves so it's a pleasure to uh, have him a part of the utb family now ah, i think yes. we'll get him on a couple more times yep. we can squeeze a bit mm. more out of uh, triana that's for yeah, sure yeah yeah also, if you're keen in that um, Brodders product, yep. uh, really well worth it. EvilGeniusDownUnder.com forward slash online. Discount code EVIL50. That's a 5-0. That's a 5-0. That's five a 5-0, Cam. 5-0. It's a 5-0, Cam. Uh, have a that's lovely pretty day. much it. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, see you. See you, Rawdon. <laughs>